Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. As we look at Peter, one of the things last time that I was at pains to emphasize was that when you compare the theology of Peter and the theology of Paul, there is no gap, there is no daylight between them. It's not the case, as you sometimes hear, that Paul says one thing and Peter says another. All of the New Testament authors, Peter and Paul alike, are, are unified, joined together in seeing uh, this, this great revelation of God in the same way. But they are still different men with different personalities and different experiences. So while there is no gap in their theology, sometimes you will observe differences of personality, certainly differences in wording as well. And so what I want to do now, having emphasized the similarity, is I want to try this morning to pick apart a little bit of a difference in emphasis. And it's going to have to do with the idea of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. We'll dig into that a little bit and explain uh, what that means. But what I want you to know to begin with is this. God's chosen exiles live between the already and the not yet. Where last week we talked about the idea of being elect exiles. God's chosen exiles, this paradoxical relationship between being despised and an outcast on one hand, but also being loved and chosen on the other. And now we're going to talk about another contrast. This time a, a contrast you might think of chronology between what has already taken place and what has not yet come to pass. Similarities. We saw already last week that the way Peter opens his letter uh, is very similar to the way that Paul opens a letter. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1, the difference is Paul just does it in a much wordier way. Peter is much more succinct and concise but they seem to follow a similar outline, so to speak. And you see this in our text this morning when Peter writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he opens his letter in those words of praise, if you flipped back to Ephesians chapter 1, you would find that Paul does exactly the same thing. When I say he does exactly the same thing, I mean he does exactly the same thing. The very words are the same. Both of them, once they've given these introductory words, they begin their epistles by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They open with doxology, with praise. But now I want to point to something that's a little bit different. I want to show you where a difference of emphasis can be observed. If you look towards the end of our text that we're going to consider this morning, you'll see this phrase at the end, by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, listen to how Paul talks about something very similar. Here we're going to turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, this is verse 23. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So you hear the similarity in the word, this idea of faith being revealed, but there is a difference chronologically. Because Paul is talking about something that has already happened. 
Peter is talking about something that has not yet occurred. So listen to it again. This is Paul talking about something that has already happened. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So we used to live under the law. We were imprisoned by the law, imprisoned by our sins, the condemnation that comes from the law. But then faith was revealed. We were set free. That's already taken place. But now look at Peter. Peter says, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A revelation that hasn't yet taken place. It's not already. It's not in the past. It's something that he looks forward to. Now, now maybe Peter and Paul are talking about two different things. No. They're talking about two parts of the same thing. One salvation with many parts, many phases. Right? The part that Paul is emphasizing has already taken place. The part that Peter is emphasizing, and we'll see in his letter, will continue to emphasize, is the part that has not yet been fulfilled. The part that has not yet come to fullness. Right? Salvation, it has begun. Grace has begun its work. And what it's done is amazing. But it's not finished yet. It has not yet done all that it will do. We look forward to what has not yet taken place. It's almost as if if you were comparing the two, Paul is saying, look at this amazing thing that has happened, while Peter is saying, look at this amazing thing that is going to happen. This thing that has not yet taken place. It's the same thing, but different aspects, different parts are being emphasized. Where Paul often brings out the richness of the already, the freedom we have from the law because of grace, we're going to see Peter bringing out the richness of the not yet, bringing out the richness of the coming faith that will be revealed. Because Peter's focus is on enduring in the present. How do you live now? And the answer Peter finds, you endure in the present by keeping your eyes fixed on what is to come. By keeping your eyes fixed on the salvation that will be revealed on the last day, in the last time. Keeping your eyes forward. You might think of it this way. If you're trying to, to grasp the difference between the already, what has already been done, and the not yet, you might think of it as this. If you as a believer are a chosen exile... The already speaks to you in your chosenness. The not yet speaks to you in your exile. Gives you strength to endure. Now, they're both important. Both of these things are important. And both Peter and Paul emphasize both of them. I'm not saying uh, Paul knows all about the already and Peter comes along and he adds the not yet. They both know both of these things. But there's a, a difference in emphasis because they have a slightly different purpose. So the already is important, and the not yet is important. What has already been done is important in at least two ways, uh, from a kingdom standpoint, but also from the standpoint of, of your own salvation. Right? When we talk about the kingdom of God, this is usually where you would hear this terminology used, the already and the not yet. We'd say the kingdom of Christ is already established, but not yet 
uh, has not yet reached its fulfillment. So Christ reigns, but he has not yet put all his enemies under his feet. He does not yet reign in the fullness with which he will reign in the future. Now that's an important thing to keep in mind, the idea that Christ already reigns, because there is a widespread conception, even within the church, that we're waiting on that to happen. That Christ doesn't reign, that the thing that we're waiting for is for Christ to come and establish his kingdom. But he's already established his kingdom. If you go back to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you go back to his words where he talks about uh, how can you plunder the house of a strong man unless you first tie him up and bind him. He's telling you, like the strong man is Satan. And Jesus is the one who's plundering his house. Like Jesus is coming in and he's taking stuff from the strong man Satan because Satan has been restrained by the power of God. This has already taken place. This is already established. And yet, it has not yet come into its fullness. It is not yet fully realized. So that's important from a kingdom standpoint, but it's also important from a salvation standpoint, like understanding yourself as one that grace has already begun a work in, but that that work is not yet complete. It helps for one thing to think about the work already done in you as a work of grace, as a work of the Spirit, to guard against the widespread conception that this is all some kind of a moralistic scheme. That what's going on here is that that Jesus came into the world because He wants us to behave better. And He gave us moral precepts, a good example to follow, so we can all start behaving better and being better people. We need to see ourselves as those who have already received a gracious work and intervention of the Holy Spirit. That that intervention is what's responsible for the work of God in our lives. So we emphasize the already to bring out the power of Christ in the world. We emphasize what he's already accomplished to emphasize the power of Christ in our salvation. Like the already is what says to us, God is sovereign. God rules and reigns. God keeps his promises. God loves us and has sent Christ to save us already. All of that has already been done. But the not yet is important too. The not yet is important too. The not yet is what keeps us from living in the present. The already keeps us from living in the past, from being caught up in the past, in the law, in the condemnation. But the not yet keeps us from living in the present, which needs a little bit of explanation because aren't we supposed to live in the present, to live in the moment, to live in today? These are all virtuous things. This is how we're meant to live. We know we're not supposed to live in the past because people who live in the past, that's sad. They need to move on. But you shouldn't also, you should like not live in the future because people who live in the future, they live on dreams, not reality. Like People who are so focused on the future, they neglect the here and now. You're so focused on, on, on what's going to happen that you get old and you're on your deathbed and you realize, wow, I never really lived. And you don't want to be that person, so as a result, you should live in the present. You should live in the moment. But I'm saying to you that the not yet is what saves you from having to live in the moment. Because living in the moment isn't all that it's cracked up to be. 
So why is it a good thing that the not yet keeps us from living in the present? Because it keeps us from making peace with the present. From a kingdom standpoint, this is helpful in a couple of ways. First of all, it prevents um, what we might call an over-realized eschatology. In other words, uh, believing we can build heaven on earth. Believing we don't have to wait. Like all the good things that we want, the perfection that we want in ourselves and in society is all available to us right now. There's no reason to look for that in the future. Let's build utopia now. By emphasizing the Christian not yet, we guard against that. We guard against putting too much hope in things that cannot possibly deliver what they promise. We remind ourselves that nothing we do and no effort that we make, whether personal or social, is going to fix the problem of human nature or fix the problem of sin. It also helps us too to, to, to keep ourselves from doing something that Christians have often been tempted to do, which is to confuse the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of man. What St. Augustine called the city of God and the city of man. If you go back in, in your ancient history, Augustine wrote this great book, City of God, because the Roman Empire was being sacked by barbarians. The Roman Empire was by that time a Christian empire, kind of a symbol of the triumph of Christianity, and now pagans were plundering it at will. The question was, what happened? What happened? And so Augustine has to say, you know what? There's actually a difference between the city of God and the city of man. The Roman Empire is not the kingdom of Christ. And the Roman Empire can fall. The kingdom of Christ will not. Not the same thing. Despite the fact that Christians in that time identified them very closely. In the same way, the United States is not the kingdom of Christ. The United States rose and it will fall. And it will not bring down the kingdom of Christ. Knowing the not yet, what is coming, knowing what is coming gives us confidence and again, guards us against false hope. From the standpoint of salvation, the not yet It helps guard against despair and faithlessness in the present age. And this is really Peter's concern. Peter's concern is that that having already come to Christ because of the suffering, because of the hardship that we endure, because of the uncertainty, that we will despair, that we will be faithless, that we won't keep true to our calling. And so his emphasis on what has not yet taken place, on this salvation that is to come, is an emphasis intended to give us strength to help protect us in this present age. I said last time that to understand who we are as Christians, we need to reclaim both of these words, elect and exile. That you have to see yourself as an elect exile to understand your identity as a Christian, and that you really can't have one without the other. You can't have chosenness without exile. You can't understand exile without chosenness. Now, if that's true, if you need those things to understand who you are, I think to understand who you are, you also need to know where you are. And that's what we're talking about here, where we are, where we're located in this great plan of God. 
between the already and the not yet. Peter is basically orienting us on a timeline, on a a timeline of redemption, a history of salvation, telling us where we are. Yes, we live because of the already. We live because of what Christ has already done. But we live for the not yet. We live for what He has not yet done, what He will do, for the rewards that are still kept for us in heaven, as Peter says. That is why we live. If we are in Christ, we are elect exiles. Just as Christ has already conquered, but He has not yet come fully into His kingdom, extended His reign to encompass everything. The same is true of our salvation. It has begun, but it's not yet completed. And so we are God's chosen exiles. Exiles who live for the not yet. Because we live for the fulfillment of our hope of salvation in Christ. If you think about being in exile, being in exile means living on hope. And it means being alienated from the place you find yourself and having some kind of future expectation. And for Peter, knowing that future is what gives us strength to endure the present. And it's interesting how he does these things. Like, like in just a few verses, you see him referencing what has already taken place, what is now, and also what is to come. According to his great mercy, Peter writes, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For Peter, if salvation is going to be God's work in the end, then it has to be God's work in the beginning as well. And it's a salvation accomplished through Christ's resurrection. Because if we are going to raise in the not yet, then He must already have been raised from the dead and conquered over death. It's interesting too that Peter, when he describes the Father, when he speaks of God, he speaks of Him in relation to the Son, in relation to Christ. That God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The living hope that He causes us to be born again to is is accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He never gives you God in the abstract. He gives you the Father in relation to the Son. The work of the Father in relation to the work of the Son. And this is how it must be. This is how it must be because you cannot find God in the abstract. You can only find the Father through the Son. Calvin wrote, whoever seeks really to know the only true God must regard Him as the Father of Christ. For whenever our mind seeks God except Christ be thought of, it will wander and be confused until it is wholly lost. Jesus says, I'm the way. There's no other means by which we come to God. And this is true not only in a kind of abstract sense, but it's true in every aspect of our salvation. It is by the the work of the Father 
that we've been caused to be born again through the work of the Son on the cross. These are the means by which it has taken place. The means of the security. And he says in no uncertain terms, God caused us to be born again according to His great mercy. He's already referred to us as elect exiles. He's already talked about God having known us from the beginning, in Paul's words, before the foundation of the world. And now he reiterates this idea that God is the cause of our salvation. And mercy is the reason. Why are we saved? Because God has caused us to be born again. And why has He done that? Because of His great mercy. Because of His grace. Not for anything that is in us. Not for any merit in us. And Peter doesn't make qualifications on this point. He doesn't speak in it in a way that really admits to watering it down. Like everybody, in some sense, everyone who who believes to any measure in Scripture will affirm in some sense that God is the author of salvation. It seems clear. It's hard to deny that God is the author of salvation. But the thing that we do is the same thing that we we talked about last time with uh, election. We acknowledge that it's there, but then we define it in such a way that it might as well not be. Or we find a way to qualify it into non-existence. The same thing here. God is the author of salvation, but we qualify it. We, we, we surround it with a lot of other criteria so that the, the, the power of that statement loses something. At Grace, we talk about longing for more grace. And I would say to you, one of the reasons why uh, these sometimes difficult doctrines of chosenness and election are so important is because it's difficult if you're longing for more grace. It's difficult to get more grace and salvation and being able to make the statement, God saves sinners without qualification. To be able to say, God saves sinners and not need to add anything to it, but... Sinners also need to do this. But you also have to do this. God saves sinners, period. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, Peter says. Giving God all the glory for it. All the credit for it belongs to God. All the reasons for it, the rationales, exist in the mind of God. And are for us unfathomable in some sense. Are for us simply to to praise. God's power though for Peter not only saves us, it also guards us. It also guards us. God's power has already brought us into relation with Him. But it preserves us in that relationship. If we are in Christ, we're being guarded through faith. We're being kept safe, so to speak through this present age. When your confidence in what God has already done is shaken, when your confidence in Him is shaken by suffering, by doubt, by by the world, and all the pressure from the outside, when that confidence is shaken and the temptation swirls around you, we have assurance 
in the not yet. Assurance in the power of God, not only in what He has done, but in what He will do. It's not just that God brought us into something, and now by our power we must cling to it. But we can be assured that the God who brought us into it will continue by His power to bring that salvation to completion. The future of God's chosen exiles is real and it is coming. And in the meantime, He guards us. He protects us. He abides with us through faith. We live by hope and our hope is not in the present. Our hope is in the future that God has promised. Peter speaks of it as a living hope, a future inheritance, a salvation that is to come. It's a living hope because it's a hope we have by virtue of Christ's resurrection. Christ literally, having been killed, comes back to life. He conquers death and creates a living hope that we enter into. It's a future inheritance because it is a heavenly one. It is an untainted one, an imperishable one. The reward, the inheritance that we have is not of this time. It's not an alloy of good and bad. It is something pure, unfading, undefiled. And salvation, Peter says, is ready. It's ready. It's ready to be revealed. It's not that it hasn't yet been done. It's not that the work isn't finished. It's not that God got the ball rolling and there's, there's just a lot of other stuff that has to fall into place before this salvation can be revealed. No, it's ready. All that it's waiting for is the time to be right. Like salvation is at the door. Salvation is... is I'm the king of bad analogies, but salvation is like the SWAT team. It has the battering ram at the door. It is ready to come in. It is waiting for the time to be right. What makes the time right is mercy. God waits so that all who will come to Him can come to Him. So we live by hope, but that hope is not a denial. It's not, it's not blindness to reality. It's not that we live by hope in the sense that we're just, we have a lot of illusions about what the present is really like. We acknowledge that we will be tested, that we will be tempted, that we will be discouraged. We will experience periods of doubt. We will fall. We will sin. All of that is true. And yet we hope. We live on hope because we have our eyes open to the inadequacy of the present. We see it for what it is and we see that it cannot be an anchor for our souls. We cannot seek our salvation in the spirit of the age. Instead, we must wait for what has not yet been revealed in Christ. We rely on God's power against the spirit of the age. So God's chosen exiles are not wanderers. God's chosen exiles are planted and rooted in a world that is not our home. You think about what it means to be an exile. By definition, to be an exile is to be uh, like a sojourner, a pilgrim. An exile is a person who lives in a place that doesn't belong to him. Lives in a land that's not his own. 
An exile is set apart from the people around him in a lot of ways. In at least two senses. Uh, an exile is set apart by virtue of the journey, but also by virtue of the destination. If you are one of God's chosen exiles, then you are on a journey and not everyone around you is. You're on a journey. Ultimately, you won't end up where you are. doesn't mean that you don't care about this place. doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to you what happens here. It does. And you're called to seek the welfare of this place by God. To be rooted and planted in the place where He's put you. And yet, you acknowledge, I'm on a journey. This isn't my home. But the exile is in this place. We're in it, just not of it. And that's where destination comes in. In it, but not of it. We are not, for example, immigrants. We're not people who came from one place to put down roots in another place. That's not the point of the analogy. We're in a, a weird kind of situation in that we're not from where we came from. We don't belong where we are. Instead, our home is a place we've never been to, never seen, and only have hearsay evidence about the existence of, and that's where we belong. It's not that, that where we were from, we left it and came to put down roots in another place. That's what I did when I came here. I'm from the south, which is very different from here, especially this time of year. And I put down roots here, and I love it here. That's not what we mean by exile. It's not that, that we've changed and now we're putting down roots in the church instead of in the world. That's not it. We don't belong here. This isn't, this isn't our home, and yet we are rooted here. We do live here. That's the, the paradox. As exiles, we are not wanderers. We aren't just moving through the desert with no sense of direction. There is a promised land that we seek. Our journey is not geographical. It is spiritual. Christians used to know this. We used to know in our fiber, in our being, that this is who we are. We used to know that we are exiles. Just as we used to know that we were chosen. We've forgotten these things. We've lost touch with them. Living in the present has dulled our sense of them. Seeking our reward in the here and now. Submitting ourselves to, to the rule of, of this life has blurred our vision of these realities. But if you are one of God's chosen exiles, your reward is not here. It's not here. What you're looking for is not here. It is not available. It is kept for you in heaven. Live for that reward. Live for that and not for this. Live for the future and not for the present and you'll start to see that you are on a different journey to a different destination. Sometimes in order to recover the knowledge that we used to have and we've somehow lost, we have to go back. This is ironic, I recognize. 
Because I'm saying live for the future. Live on hope. In order to, to understand that future better, we need to go into the past a little bit. Because this is something, as I said, that Christians used to get. And now we need to be reminded of a little bit more. We could go back to to the old theologians, go back to the Puritans and see what those guys have to say. But sometimes the expressions of our heart are not in our theology. They're in our songs. The song that I think of is, is that old, it's a 19th century folk song, an old gospel song called The Wayfaring Stranger. It's a country song now. A lot of people will remake this. I'm not going to try my hand at, at singing But I want to read these words to you because I think they capture something. And if we want to know where we are on this this timeline of salvation, they capture a sentiment that we need to recapture for ourselves. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of woe. Yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that fair land to which I go. I'm going there to see my Father. I'm going there no more to Rome. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm going over home. I know dark clouds will gather over me. I know my way is rough and steep, but golden fields lie just before me where the redeemed shall ever sleep. I'm going home to see my mother. She said she'd meet me when I come. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I know dark clouds will gather round me. I know my way is rough and steep. Yet beauteous fields lie out before me where God's redeemed their vigils keep. I'm going there to see my mother. She said she'd meet me when I come. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going over home. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm just a going over home. Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan. If there was ever a liquid metaphor, it is the River Jordan. This idea of crossing over Jordan is the idea of passing from life to death into new life. The future awaits. The hope awaits. The reward awaits for the wayfaring stranger over Jordan where those who've gone before us, who have inherited what was promised, Wait for us there. Wait for us there. Where God's redeemed, their vigils keep. Christians knew this. Peter knew this. He knew that in this present age, we would be discouraged, would feel hopeless, would feel doubtful. He knew that we could suffer for Christ today if we knew that we would see him tomorrow. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.